Hey, before we begin, a quick reminder that today's episode is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Find us at schnickfoundation.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Let's go, y'all. You are listening to The Foundation Podcast. Our goals are to help you build the foundation to live your best life, help solve problems, better serve humanity, and to become a beacon to help inspire change. We connect you with today's leaders, affecting positive and impactful global change. And now, here are your hosts, Todd and Stephanie Schnick. Good morning and welcome back to the Foundation Podcast. I am your host, Todd Schnick, joined by my co-host and my wife, Stephanie Schnick. Stephanie, uh, you know, uh, you and I were observing the Women's Alzheimer's Movement's Summer WAM Summit, and uh, we were first exposed to our guest today. Uh, She was a panelist on that summit, and uh, we were both really moved and really intrigued by her message and, and what she was talking about and this new approach to dealing with patients of dementia and elder care. And so that's thus the invitation uh, to be on the show today. But I'm sure, like me, that you're really intrigued and looking forward to this conversation, yeah? Well, obviously, this is a subject that is really near and dear to our hearts and touches us personally. Your mom is dealing, she's in the later stages of Alzheimer's disease now, and my grandmother died at the age of 90 from Alzheimer's disease. So We've got a lot of experience. A lot of experience, and I'm sure some stories to share. And, you know, another comment I want to make before I introduce our guest is you and I have been doing this foundation thing on our own now for about a year and a half. And as I've been diving into that world and learning about other organizations, it's just really, I guess not a surprise, but it's been really wonderful to kind of realize the power of art and creativity and how that's been brought into so many different realms in the nonprofit charitable world in terms of solving problems and bringing us together in community. And that's going to be no different with today's conversation. So looking forward to diving in there. So we're joined today by Dr. Ann Basting. She is an author, scholar, and an artist. And welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. We certainly appreciate you making the time to join us. We know that you're awfully busy. So thanks for carving out a few minutes for us. Before we get into our discussion around uh, your recent book, Creative Care, I do want to ask you to spend a minute or two and tell us a bit about you and your background and the work that you're out there doing. Well, I come to you from um, looking out my window. And if I peek through the trees, I can see Lake Michigan. So I am on the shores of Lake Michigan in, in Wisconsin. I really have been a, a writer and a creative artist and working and friend, uh, even as a child to older people in my life. I think my path to this unique career of integration of uh, creativity and care really comes from understanding the power of creativity in our own lives both as an expressive and meaning-making tool for us as individuals, but then also as a mechanism to connect to other people um, across generations, across abilities, to form community. So I've been doing that. I I started out as a writer, then decided maybe I probably couldn't, you know, make a living off of it, or just in case (laughs) for a practical choice, I went on to get a PhD. So I was doing both simultaneously. And then really inspired by the strong relationships in my life with older people, I 
wrote a dissertation about and did research on the senior theater movement in the United States. Um, I did a PhD in theater and performance. These are hundreds of groups across the world in which older people can perform. You know, and we, ageism takes the stage away from a lot of older people. And so it gave them a chance to do it. And I just found it incredibly inspiring to interview them and watch the performances, but realized that there, there was a little bit of a, a disability washing happening where a lot of those representations that were so amazing were cleansed of particularly cognitive disability. And I thought, could this powerful, transformative art form work with people with really profound disabilities like dementia and Alzheimer's? So that just led me to a path of volunteering. And I found myself one day on a locked unit of an Alzheimer's, a locked Alzheimer's unit, I should say, of a, of a nursing home, just trying any exercise through the arts that would work. And that my early discoveries there, which I can tell you the stories of later, really have led me down the same path for 30 years, just because I've found it so powerful as a human connective tool and so full of joy and meaning without, without disability washing, without saying, you know what, this isn't, isn't hard. This is just all joy. No, 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 no. All of the challenge is there, but you allow yourself to feel the joy and the connection too. And I think that makes such a difference in the lives of both the people experiencing dementia and Alzheimer's and in the caregivers and the families' lives. So it's been a joy for me to, to take this journey to sort of like empty out my pockets. It's, that's what I feel like I keep doing. Is, <laughs> Here, here's the tools. Here's how you do it. Here, you know, the nonprofit I have is all about that, just sharing the tools and the book and all of my work in that way. Well, and the beauty of this idea is that there's not just one way to do this. You can be creative with this too and trying different things. And, you know, one thing I never realized going into, uh, as Stephanie mentioned, the, the experience that we've been having with my mother, I never realized the power of community in terms of what would be important to her and in her world and the process of caring for her. And so this is all part of that too. So gosh, Anne, there are literally a hundred directions we could go with a conversation on this idea and this topic. Uh, we thought we would largely anchor at least the initial part of our discussion around your recent book. It's called Creative Care, A Revolutionary Approach to Dementia and Elder Care. So the book, kind of give us that 10,000 foot view message, uh, purpose of, of why you did that book. You know, like I said, I've been doing this 30 years and I've written some academic books, which I think are accessible. But I really wanted to take this moment to empty out my pockets and say, here's the tools in all through story so that people feel it's really accessible and that they can learn them and take them with them into their own lives for caring. If it's a neighbor or a friend or a parent or a spouse, a sibling, anyone who's experiencing this so that we, we don't have to abandon people or feel abandoned we can use these tools to connect and have, have meaningful connection with people experiencing cognitive challenges or depression and isolation. It's a connective communicative tool that I think can just make life and our attitudes toward it just so much better. So I guess an important question to ask 
in terms of those listening, trying to understand how this process and this approach, and we're going to go more in the depth on what that approach actually looks like, but set the table for us. I mean, what, what problem does this solve? What are we, I don't want, it's not right to say what are we doing wrong, but what is the approach that many are currently taking that isn't yielding the positive results and the joy and the community that, that your approach brings out? I mean, what are we currently doing that isn't yielding those kinds of fruits? Great question. And I'll do this in kind of concentric circles in a response. The first is that we've created a culture in which loneliness is epidemic. And particularly right now in COVID, we have a secondary pandemic of isolation and loneliness. And loneliness ends up stigmatizing itself so that people are afraid. There's It's kind of wrapped in shame. They're afraid that if they say something about being lonely or wanting to connect, particularly in late life, that it's even further stigmatizing. Nobody wants to know that. Nobody wants to hear that. A similar stigma for mental health, depression, loneliness. And maybe you've experienced this too. In Western culture, we very much identify the self, one sense of who I am, with one's ability to control one's memory. And so when someone starts to have challenges with it, with cognition, even very early, there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of fear. And then as people move through the experience, and perhaps you had this, friends fall away. They don't know how to be in relationship with you. They're afraid, like they'll catch it or something. I'm not sure. Or they just, they don't want to say the wrong thing. Everyone moves toward memory and shared experience as a way of communicating and bonding through story. And when that is ruptured, people just don't have the tools. They don't know how to show, I care about you. I connect with you if they lose that capacity as a place to connect through memory. And so I just say with this work that what we can do is if you walk up to someone and you realize that memory loss is there or cognitive challenges are there and other manifestations, you don't let it stop you from connecting. You just walk right around it and use the imagination-based approach. Connect in the now, and we can talk about those very specific techniques, but it doesn't stop you from connecting. Recognizing the loss doesn't keep you from having friendship or family relationships or meaningful connection. That's really the the juncture where isolation could happen. We bring connection. And I think that is a real challenge for a lot of people. I know something Todd and I agreed upon very early on when we assumed the care of his mother when his father passed away is that I know some people will approach, you know, someone with memory loss and kind of the things that they say that often aren't true, (laughs) but they're true to to them. And like you said, being in that moment. So we both agreed on the approach of just being with her where she is, going with her where she goes. And it leads to some very interesting (laughs) experiences, but it makes her happy. And I think one thing we learned early on too, is when you're going through a journey of um, memory loss with someone, you know, I mean, she's in a wonderful uh, memory care community here near us in Lincoln Park. And, you know, we visit right as often as we can right now with COVID. But, you know, so she's physically being cared for and we get to still be her family and who we are on any given day changes. But 
but we're family. <laughs> and so that just gives us an opportunity. What we focus on is creating moments of joy for her. So any interaction that we have with her is all about just making her happy and bringing her joy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because when you're talking to someone with dementia, oftentimes they're telling very tall tales and yeah. things that they're recalling that didn't happen or didn't happen the way that, that they're describing. And it still strikes me how many people still try to correct them. And, you know, I, I always tell this story about my grandmother who had uh, dementia. And she, uh, one time I visited her, I said, well, what did you do last night? And, and that, I, I realized now that was a hard question to ask her because they probably didn't remember. But she said, well, I went on a date with Clark Gable. And my mom and dad would, would have argued with her about that. Not argued, but would try to correct her. But I would just get into, oh, tell me about Clark. What a neat guy he was. I mean, that, that's, a, that's an opportunity and right to be creative and, and be in the moment and kind of go with it and, and make them happy and connect. Yeah. That's the core of the first step in the approach that we suggest in creative care, which is called uh, improvisation. And it's yes and. So you accept First of all, you get very good at observing everything. So it's not even just the words that someone is saying, but the intention, the pitch, the physical, the body language, all the you know forms of communication, because words are only 7% of communication. 93% is nonverbal. So if you, you get very good at reading everything in front of you and observing it, and then you respond with, yes, I accept this. And I'm going to add to it in a positive way, not undercut it or correct it. So that's the beauty of what you're describing. The other thing I'll add there is that the arts are an emotional and symbolic language. And so part of my comfort with walking into this space and having and finding and making meaning with people with dementia is that I don't look at the words as the primary form of communication. So What I would hear when your mother says, I had a date with Clark Gable, I'd I'd hear joy to, ooh, that sounds like it it made you happy. Tell me about it. You know, you're learning to communicate and echo emotions instead and symbolic meaning rather than necessarily what's the literal meaning. Because if you think about it in dementia, if someone is trying to tell you something, there's a really good chance that the pathway for that piece of information to travel in the brain is broken. So they're going to come up with different ways of saying it. So if your mother might have been wanting to express something else, and this story about the words around how I had a date, date with Clark Gable is what came out, right? And that's also with other conditions like aphasia and things like that. So you go inside of that expression and figure out what's in there. So it's also like, really fun, emotional, human detective work (laughs) that is fascinating. And, you know, I train a lot of undergrad and high school students to do this work as well, which is so powerful because they often, it's their first exposure to long-term care, aging, dementia. A lot of them don't have any relationships with older people in their lives. And to have it be playful and joyful is just really, really empowering to them. A lot of times young people think, oh, I I wouldn't want to work in that field. And after this kind of experience, they're like, I feel okay. I know how to engage in my own family. Mm -hmm. This is really interesting work. So I feel like we're doing a lot to also decrease ageism, both as sort of culturally, but then as it's internalized for ourselves, our own fears about what living through that condition can be. 
well, caregiving for someone with Alzheimer's, that's heavy work. And this idea, this approach is, as you said, it can be a fun way to, to go about your business, right? I mean, and it strikes me that, that one of the real keys here to those of us in the, on the caregiving side of the equation here, one of the muscles we've got to really work on strengthening and, and paying attention to is our ability to listen, right? And that, that's, to me, that's not like that's key to this process because you can't do yes and very well if you're not really paying attention. Yes, and I'll say the, the yes and is the first step. The second one is what we call beautiful questions and learning how to ask a beautiful question, which, which you clearly have a running head start on with uh, the description of how you engage with your mom. A beautiful question is one that opens a shared path of discovery. There's no right or wrong answer to it. And someone can respond out of strength in any way that they can. So an example from your own example would be, tell me about Clark Gable. <laughs> there's no, I mean, there's no wrong answer to that, right? Mm-hmm. So she can run with it. You know, there's a lot of examples. There's a whole chapter on beautiful questions. And I used to, for a long time, call them open-ended questions. But I, I decided that it's really an art, how to learn how to phrase these and when to ask them and how to ask them. So I like the term beautiful question because it kind of taps into that sense of artistry behind it. The Time Slips website, the nonprofit that I work with, has a whole section in its creativity center with hundreds of beautiful questions as well so that people can see you know, examples of that. And then the third step is what we call proof of listening. You know, listening is such a crucial part of relationship building and authentic listening. People have written about uh, genuine listening. Essentially, you really commit to the space to hear someone before you start formulating what you're going to say in response. <laughs> but proof of listening asks a little bit something deeper, which is that you find a way to show the person that they've been heard. You're offering them something so that you, you might echo the words that they're saying. You might write them down so that they can read them. You might change your behavior or your demeanor to show that it's impacted you in some way, that the person feels heard and understands that they've been heard. And that is where I've felt the most magic from this process in the years I've been doing it, that somebody who's kind of been either shut down by their care system or shut down out of fear of saying the wrong thing or the disease process to create sort of this magic space in which they can experiment with expression and really feel heard. It's almost like watching their soul come out because they're trying to connect and they feel safe doing it. That's really deep human-to-human work. It's really, really rewarding. This is so important. And it's just speaking from our own, you know, current experiences with Todd's mom. She's at the point now from a communication standpoint, it's difficult, hard as we try, it's difficult to, even for a short 20-minute visit, to have a conversation with her. And we still make the mistakes, I guess I would say, of trying to converse with her in the way that we would engage with someone who doesn't have dementia. Things like, what did you have for breakfast? I mean, and then I catch myself, I'm like, she doesn't know. Or, and she, honestly, at this point, I don't even know if she, she knows what I'm talking about. So I love this concept of beautiful questions and just scrapping our everyday norms, you know, when we're engaging with someone with cognitive impairment. 
Well, this idea of, I mean, we have, I don't want to put my family on the spot, but we have a lot of family in the area that, that do not visit mom regularly. And I suspect one of it is just a fear of, yeah. I don't know how to do it. I don't, right. I'm, I'm, un, I'm uneasy about, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And, and is it, and I want to ask you to comment on this. Is it fair to say, Anne, that don't worry about it? There's really nothing you can say that's wrong because part of it is you're learning how this works. You never know day to day how they're going to, the patient's going to be mentally and some days they'll be bright and cheerful. Some days they'll be agitated and upset. Nothing you can do about it. And frankly, I don't mean to be brusque here, but we're not going to remember in five minutes anyway, you know, so there should be no fear on just getting in there and doing the yes and strategy and asking beautiful questions. And it's going to go where it's going to go, right? Yes. Yes. And (laughs) I'll say say yes. And then I'll say, and I think also part of, of that hesitation to visit is that there's, there isn't a belief that good will come out of it for either party. She's not going to remember me in five minutes anyway. And it's only going to depress me and make me remember her like this instead of how I want to remember her. That's often what you hear. What I hope all the stories that I pour into this book show you is that it's though you can create these enriching reciprocal moments that are beautiful and meaningful to both people. And maybe there'll be a day when it's just a bad day. That's totally possible. But it's also possible that like the day that I went and visited Jim, and there's a whole chapter about Jim and I in my TED Med talk, I talk about that as well, where he didn't even have words. He had no words left. And I said, Jim, can you show me how water moves? And he picked up a piece of driftwood and just started moving it as though it was rolling over water. And he danced for probably a half an hour and we echoed it. And we, we his wife and care um, giver, they had a home care agency helping them. We were just it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Wow. I have that now because I wasn't afraid to go visit him, <laughs> right? It's really, there are moments of beauty and connection waiting to be uncovered that give you a sense of hope and meaning beyond things that are blocking us in our everyday lives. It really is worth trying it and going. And seeing, and I'll, and I'll add one other thing, which is that you're, what you're describing is such a common thing that we just finished a, a two-year project with support from the Ralph Wilson Foundation in southeastern Detroit to put these tools in the hands of families. Now, we started it before COVID, so originally they were going to be little grassroots gatherings that we called engagement parties. And it was a way for a family and friends to gather to say, you know what, here are some techniques that can just help us connect with mom or with dad or with cousin or aunt or uncle or whoever. And there's a host guide and it just walks you right through a very, a super simple process for this. It's like the, the most digestible tidbit, you know, that you can have to understand these techniques. Um, and that's officially launching in November in Caregiver Awareness Month, which is great. And it'll be on the timeslips.org website and it's all free. Oh, wow. Great stuff. Any other steps in the approach that you want to talk to walk us through? I mean, we've talked about three. 
Yes. So those are the first three. The other one is open yourself to wonder. Wonder is curiosity. It is the accepting of the limits of our own knowledge that, oh, I don't know how that works and that's okay. (laughs) And to pursue it. And in dementia, where I see opening yourself to wonder is moving beyond that response. She won't know who I am. She might, you know, we just don't know any given moment, whether there'll be a flare of lucidity, whether someone's, we don't know, even if someone is nonverbal in the very late stages, what sort of sensory stuff they're taking in, we don't know. And if you open yourself to a sense of wonder, it opens a playfulness and a curiosity around this that hopefully is stronger than the fear that inhibits you from engaging. And then the final one is connect to the larger world. And that's another way of saying, give it a sense of purpose. So an example of that is, A very simple exercise I've done with my own mom, picking up a piece of fruit. I mean, we we use anything as a creative prompt. Piece of fruit on the dining room table, kitchen table. Hold it up, feel it, smell it. What are the first responses that you have? If you can use words, use words. If you use movement, use movement and then describe it. So three phrases in response to an apple. Write them down one under the other put it on a little blank postcard or an index card, draw a picture of an apple on the front, and then on the back with the poem, say, mom and I wrote a poem for you. Um, And send it to one of those family members who's afraid to visit so that that you're, you're giving. Creativity and generosity reduce stress and increase a sense of well-being for everyone, for us, for caregivers, for people experiencing disability and anxiety and around cognition, marrying those two things of purpose and creativity is a really powerful combination. What we're trying to do here is form a connection, right? And the, that connection benefits both parties, the patient and the caregiver, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's a reciprocal benefit. And the other important lesson that I'm hearing from you, I, I guess I knew this, but didn't ever really put it into a concept that I can understand it. But my mom, although she struggles to communicate and word choice is very, very difficult and she has no no memory, she's still curious about the world around her and about mm-hmm. life. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And we and gotta think, we gotta facilitate that. Yeah. And I think one of my favorite beautiful questions we made in the beginning of COVID Time Slips made these postcards with beautiful questions on them to share with uh, care communities because everyone was on lockdown. So here was one of them, which is what gift would you give to the next generation? Any gift you want to give. And I think too often people think that when you lose your memory or you're nearing the end of your life, you're afraid to think of the future or of the world that's going to come after you when I find the opposite, which is people really are invested in in a vision for what they want to give and what they hope for others. So yes, I think people really do want to have an impact and they can. Another example of that is, you know, we do these individual creative sessions with people, very micro moments of the day to kind of establish storytelling sessions in, in care communities to a two-year project, which I also write about those in the book too where an entire care community reimagined the story of Homer's Odyssey 
and we we just had a hundreds of creative sessions around it, around the themes, across all different art forms. And then we put it all back together into a performance that we collaboratively staged through the care community. And afterwards, I said to a woman, did you enjoy being part of the Penelope Project? And she said, it's the last important thing I'll do. Wow. I, this is a woman in the skilled care, you know, with cognition issues. You can feel when someone puts meaning and value into something and they invite you into it. You can feel that it's treasured and important. And that's always what we try to do. Let the person know that you're taking what they say and offer seriously. And you can shape it into something beautiful. So it acts as a legacy and a sense of purpose. And the way I'm processing this is that what we've been talking about so far is, is almost like a communications process. But talk about the actual creative arts. And is there a role and a place for them in this idea, this approach? Uh, I'll share a story or two about my mom. But she, uh, one day she was having a very bad day and was very agitated. And one of the things she does is she paces up and down the hall. And she happened to walk by the TV room and Barbara Streisand was, they had a video of her performing. And so mom was, had been a big Barbara fan in her earlier life. And she stopped. They could tell, they could sense that she had just relaxed. She smiled and sat down and just was engrossed in the performance. And they've now learned that when mom's having a rough time, they throw on Barbara and it just changes (laughs) her dynamic. And so there's an example of the arts, something beautiful, something creative, how that's to, it can change a mindset almost instantly, you know, and then there, there's a, a patient on her floor who will occasionally sit down and play the piano. And when mom hears that, she'll just walk up, sit down and start singing along. I mean, doesn't know the guy. But, so <laughs> th- those are just two in- interesting examples, let alone all the creative stuff, the painting and the, you know, making uh, Easter egg dying, Easter egg dying, all those kinds of things. I mean, that's, that's, that gives them all joy and all that. Talk about the arts and, and the role that they play in all this too. Well, the arts have been falsely separated from our well-being in medical and social service settings. So it's as though healthcare providers want to provide, you know, want to make you healthy, but that art stuff is over there. But really, art stuff is about expression and meaning and connection and all those things that are part of your health. <laughs> And your well-being, right? So I feel as though they, if I have a huge, large goal, I put creativity and care next to each other in the title of the book. I'm trying to bring them all back into an integration so that, you know, before your mom went into a care facility or a care community, she got to listen to any music she wanted. Why shouldn't she have that now? Like... (laughs) And also music, also we know from a specific disease perspective that it is so complexly encoded in our brains and and in the part with emotional memory that it is one of the last things to go. And, And it is soothing because it triggers an emotional memory and brings you right into feeling of calmness or, you know, joy. And, you know, for me, if it was a certain kind of music, it would also agitate me, but it really brings you right in. And Nothing is faster at creating a sense of connection and community than voices joining together or someone playing an instrument joining with singing. It's almost an immediate illustration of 
I'm with you. I'm not alone. And I think the loneliness of the dementia experience is really underexplored, especially because a lot of people are compounded with hearing issues. You really, you can feel like you're in solitary confinement in that experience. And so the power of finding connection like that just is soothing almost immediately. So there's some great programs out there, Music in Memory and some others that really are teaching care homes to you know, get a list when you check someone in, when you bring someone into the environment, find out what music they love and what creative assets they bring. What in their lives did they cook? Did they, you know, all exploring the past, but also not to be afraid of opening up new opportunities for people. Oftentimes what we would hear is my dad won't do this creative stuff. He was very serious accountant, banker, very powerful man, never, well, let me tell you, <laughs> you know, don't count them out. It's not right. childlike. We value it. We protect it. We're opening up opportunities for him to be expressive and to feel emotion and joy. And maybe he never got to do that because he was a powerful business guy. And maybe, maybe this is the chance. I love hearing you talk about this. When we moved my mother-in-law into her new memory care community, literally the day before they went on lockdown for COVID in March, um, I made these signs to put on the back of her door in her new apartment and had pictures of her and said, you know, this is Pat. She loves to golf. She loves to travel. She loves to garden. And just to help them understand what her life was about and what, you know, has meaning to her. So I love hearing you talk the same way about music. Well, and hearing you talk about singing uh, reminded me, Stephanie, of, of Peg. Peg is my aunt, my mom's sister, who visits her regularly. And both were active in their church through most That's of right. their life. And so they, they on some occasions, will, will get together and sing church hymns. Yeah. And let me assure you, I'm sure it, it's powerful for my mother, but I can't tell you how meaningful that is for my aunt in terms of a, of a memory that she now has for, for these visits and, and the role she's playing in my mom's care, if you will. So you can't overlook the power of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I have a whole chapter on choirs for people with dementia, and they're spreading across the country. And in the COVID moment, a lot of them have moved online, which is challenging for, for some people because it's, it's disorienting for some, but, and people don't have the, the Wi-Fi in other situations, but they're still finding a way to connect through song. And do me a favor, because I feel like there's two audiences that should be hearing this message of in your approach. There's the professional caregiver that works in a community or as a part of a home care agency. And they have training, they have staff, they have resources, they have encouragement from management to focus on these things. Speak to that family caregiver, the one who right now is overwhelmed, tired, stressed, trying to raise their own kids, trying to deal their own job, take care of the house, feed the family, and care for their, their parent. And they're so harried and, and run down and exhausted. And they hear this and they say, how in the heck do I have time yeah. to I'm just, kind of yeah. think about these kinds of things? Speak to that person and help them understand how they can envelop this into their, their caregiving ritual. And frankly, what a, what a powerful impact it can have in reducing some of that, of that workload and that burden. Yeah. 
I would encourage people to try the engagement party format. And we're, we're doing virtual ones as well for people because we walk people through scenarios of day-to-day moments where it could come into a conflict. But if you use the technique, you can walk around it and dissolve the conflict into a moment of connection rather than confrontation. An example from the engagement parties, and I I give this example in the book as well, is someone gets really frustrated because they can't think of the word, you know, pass me the, pass me that, you know, and instead you just, what do you, what do you want to call it? What, just tell me what what you want to call red sauce. Here, here's the red sauce. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter if the word a very funny story that I uh, is just sort of random from my own experience with my, one of my grandmothers with advanced Parkinson's and dementia related to that was she got into this loop where she just kept saying, I can't see, I can't see, I can't see. And it was clearly an expression of pain in of some way. She could see. She had her glasses on. She was <laughs> but I said, Grandma. And she looked at me and I went, <laughs> my tongue out. And she stopped and she laughed and she stuck her tongue out and we just laughed, you know, and it was a disruption of that moment. And my father told me a story, which was just, you know, heartbreaking where he had arranged for all friends to get to, and you know how hard it is to get friends together to go out to dinner and um, this was pre-COVID and, but still people are uneasy and uncomfortable. So they went out, they had a wonderful time and they got home and mom was kind of agitated and was like, do should I set the table? Should I set the table? And, you know, it meant she didn't even remember dinner and it was really hard on him and he wasn't sure how to respond. Sally, we just went out to dinner. You know, we just had this, because it's frustrating. And instead he said, are you hungry? And she thought, and she said, we already ate. (laughs) Yeah, we did. And we had a great time. We had my friends, our friends were there. You know, it was like, come back. Mm -hmm. Um, With figuring out that question that can bring the moment back to you. So it's less that you have to make time for it than you have to go into the mind frame and let it become where you live. It should be your operating system. And it's not work. It shouldn't be anything that's a burden. As I understand it, it's a, an entirely different way of operating in this context that you know that is your reality. And it ought to be a fun. And you can't go wrong. And you can only learn. And there's nothing to lose by, by strengthening that listening muscle because that's good for all fronts in your life and is going to make that, that job of being a family caregiver easier and you'll learn a lot more that way. I mean, so this approach ought not be intimidating. It ought to be a relief. It ought to make you feel, oh, all right, I, I can, because in essence what you're saying, Anne, is just to kind of reset your mindset here and just look at things a little bit differently and it changes everything. It's a way to both protect the health and well-being of the person you're caring for and for yourself. Yeah. If we internalize negative attitudes about aging and allow the fear about our own aging and our own late life to 
get into our systems. The research says we live 7.5 years less. So it's stressing us out. It's making us afraid of that our own late life will be meaningless. So investing into leaning into meaning just makes it all better. Leaning into meeting. I'm going to write like that, that down. And uh, before we let you go, I don't want to take up much of your time. Any other topic or idea or concept that, that Stephanie and I have failed to, to bring out of you? Anything you want to mention to the audience that they should be thinking about with regards to this, this approach? I think that after you get the joy of it and that you, you're like, I'm not going to worry. Feeling joy in these moments is okay. <laughs> it's okay to laugh. And to have fun because if you're not, you know, that old adage, if you're not laughing, you're crying. Right. What else is there? And and then you, you know, the timeslips.org is the, like I said, that's the nonprofit I work with. So many resources there, including a whole community of people who've become what we, we describe it as the creative care revolution. And allow yourself to be inspired and then to turn around and tell someone else who, when somebody, you see someone being afraid, you're like, you know what? This is so simple. It's not a pill. You don't have to, it's just opening yourself to the moment and it makes it so much better. So, well, I'm glad you said other people about it as well. And I'm glad you start, talked about joy because, you know, as Stephanie mentioned earlier in the conversation, uh, we see our mission and purpose with regards to my mother as creating moments of joy for her. We're allowed to do that too. I mean, and this approach brings joy to the caregiver as well and should. And, and that's an okay way to go about doing this. And you're still loving and caring. In fact, I think it makes you a better caregiver if you're seeking to get that, that reward and that community for yourself too as you go through this process. I think that's, a, that's an important thing. That, that, and I have to forehead smack myself <laughs> frequently to remember that myself. So... Thank yeah. you for talking about that. Well, Anne, there's so much more we could talk about. I have a feeling this will not be the last we hear from you and, and that you will continue your important work in this with helping those dealing with dementia and other ideas around elder care, but uh, all the time we have for today. So before we let you go, should anyone need to connect with you, learn more about your work, and most importantly, get their hands on a copy of Creative Care, where do they go? Well, probably the easiest is Amazon for Creative Care. I have a website, ann-basting.com. There's a whole page for creative care there. And timeslips.org, you'll see all of this work there as well. All right. I also want to point out that in the spring, you did 40 daily doses of creative care, and they are available on your Facebook page. So if you're interested in those, if you go to ann-basting.com, and you go to the creative care page, if you scroll down, there is a link that will take you directly to Anne's Facebook page and you can access those. Good yeah, stuff. It's a tiny bite-sized piece of creativity every day. Love it. Changes everything. Dr. Anne Basting, an author, scholar, and artist, and author of the recent book, Creative Care, A Revolutionary Approach to Dementia and Elder Care. And great pleasure to have you. Thanks again for kindly giving us a few minutes today to share this approach. Happy to, and thank you for your work as well. Appreciate thank you that. so much. All right. That's all the time we have for today. On behalf of our guest, Dr. Ann Basting, my wife, Stephanie Schneck, I'm Todd Schneck. It's all the time we have. Thank you for tuning in and listening. We'll see you again soon on the Foundation Podcast. 
The Foundation Podcast is produced by Intrepid Media and is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Learn more by visiting schnickfoundation.org. And thank you for listening. Now, get out there and do some good, and we'll see you next time. 